carrying on in our um, studies in First Epistle of John this morning, and we're into chapter 2, starting at verse 3 to verse 14. Verse 3, now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word truly, the love of God is perfected in him. And by this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought to walk just as he walked. Brothers and sisters, I know I write no new commandment, but an old commandment which you've had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the, the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He who says he's in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light and there's no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven, you for his, uh, forgiven you for his name's sake. I write, write to you, fathers, because you've known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you've overcome the wicked one or the evil one. I write to you, little children, because you've known the father. I've written to you, fathers, because you've known him who is from the beginning. I've written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. In the first week, we considered Jesus as the word of life. The eternal one who expresses and makes known to us all that the father is. He is the revelation of God to humanity. He is the one through whom we encounter the father. It's all through Jesus. And we learned that this knowledge of Jesus brings us into fellowship both with God and with one another. He is the way to truly connecting with God the Father and through with his body, Jesus' Jesus body, us the church. And this in turn, we, we learned, gives us fullness of joy when we really make that connection. We also said that in the rest of the letter, John deals with all those things that mar, that get in the way, that cause a stumbling block between us and God, and between us and one another. And so last week, we then considered the issue of sin in the life of a believer. And we admitted that we all sin. Every one of us. But we also affirm that God has made a way for us to live in the light with him. If we, if we sin, he will help us sort it out. He's made a way, he's made provision in Jesus Christ, both for forgiveness of our past, our present, and our future. He's dealt with it, and we don't have to live in the guilt and the burden of our sin. What we must not do is try to cover it up and pretend everything is okay when we know it isn't. We then went on to consider Jesus both as our advocate, our our lawyer, pleading on our behalf before the Father, but also as our propitiation. And we define that as the one who turns away God's wrath against sin from us. So that we don't have to bear the punishment for our sin because he already has. That was all that we've dealt with in the first two weeks. And this brings us to this week. A further consideration of stuff that gets in the way. And once more we have some of John's black and white reasonings. And he tells us that the proof of the reality of our relationship with God. 
is if we keep his commandments. And this thought is similar to that that James expresses in James 2.14-19, to where he tells us that the proof of our faith is displayed in our works. The proof of our faith is displayed by how you live your life following that, that, that coming to faith. And for me, this highlights an issue that I've observed across the evangelical world for many years. It bothers me. It's exemplified in the preaching of many evangelists and others. And it's this idea that all people have to do to get to heaven is pray the prayer. And they're in, and that's it forever. Scripture never says that. Coming to faith is not just a matter of praying the prayer. We may have come to belief in Jesus as the Son of God, the Saviour, the crucified King, the risen Lord. However, that must result in a change in our life, or else it's ineffective. And that's not to say that we can earn our salvation through our actions, but as James says, we prove our salvation through our actions. The reality of the belief that we express in Jesus Christ is only made real if we then live it out. Otherwise, it's not real. It's just an expression. It's just words. It has to be lived out to be real. And the instruction given in Scripture is invariably repent and believe. Not just believe, it's repent and believe. And repentance is not about feeling sorry or even feeling mortified for the things we've done wrong in the past. Repentance is a decision of the will to live as God wants me to live in the light of all that Jesus has done for me. It's a change of mind followed by a change of actions. And it's this that John is putting his finger on in in this passage. And John doesn't pull any punches here. He tells us that if we really know Jesus, we'll keep his commandments. And if we say we know him but don't keep his commandments, he says we're liars. However, our love for God, our true love for God, will, not be, will be displayed through our obedience. It's quite simple. Love for Jesus is displayed not through the words we use, the songs we sing, or, any, or through anything else but our actions in our lives. Standing on a Sunday morning and singing Jesus I love you, as we have done, and getting a nice warm fuzzy feeling inside is meaningless unless our lives are also submitted in obedience to him. That kind of worship just doesn't cut it with God. It's got to be lived out. It's got to be real Monday through Saturday through the rest of the week. It's got to be expressed in the way we are with people. It's got to be expressed in the way we do things during the week and what we do. Otherwise, it's, it's meaningless. It's empty words. It's religious talk. So what commandments is John referring to here? Is he talking about the Ten Commandments? Well, possibly, but as we shall see in this next section, he's actually directing us to Jesus and his life. He, con- he concludes that part by telling us, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus lived. Now, that's pretty easy, isn't it? <laughs> if we live in him, we're to live as Jesus lived. That's the standard that, that John lays down. Anyone own up to that this week? I think it's more of an aim and an aspiration 
than a reality for most of us. But that's what John's saying. Look at Jesus. That's how you should live. And, and, and if you want a target, get a good target. Then you've got something to go for. That, that's John's message in, in, in what he says here. And I think we can begin to grasp this as we study the life of Jesus, as we look at his life, as we read the Gospels. And in his life, we see per- perfect submission to the will of the Father. We see a willingness to lay down everything he had, his job as a carpenter, a jobbing carpenter, his own goals, everything to serve the will of God. He stood for justice and righteousness. He had compassion for the poor and the needy, the downtrodden, the sick, and even the dead. If we base our life on what we see in Jesus, we won't go far wrong. That's what John is saying. And then John tells us, in language reminiscent of Jesus, that he's not giving them a new commandment. And then he is giving them a new commandment. I'm not quite sure whether it's a new commandment or an old commandment. The one they've had from the beginning. The commandment, of course, was the one given by Jesus in John 13, 34. When Jesus said, a new commandment I give unto you. What was it? That you love one another. That's the commandment John is referring to here. The commandment Jesus gave was to love one another, just as he's loved us. And it's this commandment that John's referring to. It's this commandment of love that typified everything Jesus did and said. And so its truth was seen in him. It's living in this commandment that causes the darkness to pass and the light to come, John says. In other words, for more of the presence of God to be seen in our lives, we need to be those who love one another. You want the presence of God? Love God's people. Love one another and express it in actions. And John then returns to his practical black and white self in the verses that follows. He tells us that if, if we claim to be in the light, in other words, connected with God through Jesus, and yet hate our brother or sister, we're actually still in darkness. You can't claim to love God and be in the light if you hold in grudges and hold in bad feelings towards other brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. John says you're a liar. You're deceiving yourself. I love John. He's so black and white. He doesn't let you get away with anything. But there's profound truth in this. It's impossible for a true believer to hold hatred in their heart towards another. If they do, it undermines what they say they believe. And John then confirms the opposite, the corollary. If we love our brother or sister, that's the proof that we're living in the light. And if we didn't get it right first time, John then repeats himself telling us that there are no two ways about it. If you hate your brother or sister, you're in darkness and are stumbling around, not knowing which way to go. But if you love your brother and sister, you're demonstrating the truth of what's happened and that God has come and that the light has shone and that the salvation of God is there. But surely none of us is guilty of hatred towards one another, are we? John, like Jesus... A Middle Easterner. And Middle Easterners historically and typically express their tr- a truth by using hyperbole. In other words, they use an extreme to demonstrate what they mean. We see this time and time again in, in Jesus' teaching in the Gospels. 
In other words, in order to emphasize a truth, they take it to that extreme so that you understand the strength of what they're meaning. An example is Jesus telling us that if your eye offends you, pluck it out. Jesus didn't literally mean take your eye and pluck it out. Using an extreme to demonstrate how we should live and how we should guard our thoughts and what comes in through our eyes. In the same way, John is using hyperbole here. He's telling us that there are two ways of living in the body of Christ. We either live in love or we live in hate. There's no middle ground. Living in love means living as Christ lived and allowing love to be our motivation in all our actions towards brothers and sisters. Living in hate is living selfishly and for our own gain, ignoring the needs of those around us. And this leads to a very basic question which only we as individuals can answer. What's your motivation towards others in the body of Christ? Is it love? Or is it disinterest? Or is it even anger? John makes it clear that the answer to that question is the determinant of whether we're really in the light or not. And whether our relationship with Jesus is really genuine. And I would encourage each one of us this morning... If you're harboring wrong thoughts towards another member of the body of Christ, whether here or elsewhere, or towards the church in general, don't leave here until you've sorted it out. Live in love, and you will live in the light. Harbor hate, and you will live in darkness. That's John's message to his people, to the people he's writing to, to the churches that he helped found. So in the final section of this reading, John tells us why he's writing these things, but he breaks it down across three categories of people. And the three categories are the children, the old, and the young. Now this morning, you need to decide for yourself which category you sit in. Are you children? Are you old? Or are you young? (laughs) Young is fairly flexible there. Firstly, the children... John tells us that he's writing to them for two reasons. That their sins have been forgiven through Jesus and that they know the Father. And this typifies the the faith of the very young or those young in the faith. He's not highlighting highlighting faith-filled works or bold exploits that demonstrate um, where they're at. He's simply identifying the simple belief and knowledge of those who come to an understanding of the forgiveness of their sins, and of the Father's love. For those beginning the journey of discipleship, that's enough to get us started, to know that our sins are forgiven, and to know that God loves us. And each one of us needs to know that, whatever stage we're at the journey, our sins are forgiven because of Jesus, and God loves us. And that is often all the stimulus we need to take us further. Second, John writes to the fathers and the mothers, I presume, as well. And for this category, he has only one thing to say. Because you know him who is from the beginning. Of course, in using this expression, he's referring to Jesus, the Messiah. And it takes us back to the start of the letter. That which was from the beginning. He's referring back to that Jesus, the eternal one. The one who was from the beginning. The one who is all things that the, the, the Father God has expressed towards us. 
because you know him who is from the beginning. Of course, in using that expression, he was referring to Jesus. The suggestion is that the more mature we are, the more we've come to know and understand who Jesus is and all that he's done for us, the more we come to love him. And I have to admit, I never grow tired of hearing about Jesus. And the more I hear of him, the more I want to hear of him. And the more I do so, the more I go to love him further. Not only for what he's done, but for who he is. And this too is a spur, a stimulus towards discipleship. If you're getting old this morning, fall in love with Jesus a bit more. The one who has been there from the beginning. And the one who is always and continues to be the the one who gives access to the Father and who pleads before the Father on our behalf. The third category John writes to is the young people. John identifies that such people are strong, know how to overcome the evil one, because the word of God lives in them. There is that vigor in youth. And I mean anyone who thinks of themselves as still young. And that, that that vigor in youth gives the energy to fight the battles that need to be fought. There are things I would have taken on when I was young that I wouldn't take on now. There were situations I found myself in and overcame. And I thought, how did I possibly do that? Because the vigor of youth helps you overcome. And as you get old and your strength starts to diminish... It's not quite as easy to get up to fight those battles anymore. You have to start to listen to your body. Of course, some of us try to stave off the tide of time by going to the gym and eating more healthily. But it catches up with us eventually. Absolutely. And that's why it's the young that need to take up the battles to overcome. Because the the young are the ones with the energy. And this is a critical issue for our day. Not just for us, but for the church as a whole. The millennial generation is not connecting with the church. And I'm not saying it's their fault or the church's fault. It's more around the expectations of both that have not been met. And this is seriously worrying for the next generation of church leadership. It's those who are 20 to 35 who are needed in the church to carry the battle on. And they're the ones who are missing. When we who were older were that age, if we weren't happy with the state of the church, we left and started new churches that fitted with our ethos and culture. The next generation hasn't done that. It's dropped out. And this is worrying for the future of the church in this country. If we look at scripture time and time again, the children of the revival generation who went away from God. You think about it, when the people of Israel came out of Egypt through the wilderness, the ones who went into the land did bold exploits. But the scripture very clearly says the next generation were not connected with God and they went away. And that has happened time and time again through scripture and through history. The first generation comes out with an enthusiasm and with that We're breaking new ground and we're going to take things for God. But having taken that ground, the next generation becomes familiar with those things that that first generation fought so hard to achieve. And 
they fail to, to understand the cost, perhaps. And I'm not blaming them. It's just life. It's just the way things happen. And that results in a generation that drifts away. And this is what we see in our day. And, you know, I've, I've struggled and, and thought and prayed about this. And all I can come to is that we have to pray. We have to pray seriously for this next generation. That God would raise up prophets amongst them who will bring them back to faith. We need to pray that they'll encounter God in the depths of their being in such a way that it will motivate them to seek and serve him. To surrender their future and their destiny to him. We need God to do a work that's new and unique for this next generation. We need those of that generation who are still in the church to be the vanguard of that new work. We need to pray. We're going to run out of energy soon, folks. But we need a new generation for God to raise up a new generation who will take hold of the battle and take us into the future. Please pray for them. The future of the church depends on them. Support them. Encourage them. Pray. So in this pithy way, John has redirected us back to that which demonstrates how real our faith is. He's identified that the genuineness of our faith is generated, demonstrated in our obedience to Jesus' commandments. And those commandments concern loving one another in the body of Christ. If we hold hate in our hearts towards brothers or sisters, we're deceiving ourselves. And he says our lives should be modeled on Jesus. Now let's strive on as long as we have the energy to do so. To make the kingdom a reality amongst us and in this place. Amen. Amen. Let's pray and then I'll invite Natalie to come and lead us in the last song. Father, we thank you for what you have done for us. We thank you for connecting us to yourself and to your body through Jesus. And I pray, Lord God, we may take seriously that new commandment to love one another, just as you have loved us. And that, Lord God, that might express who we are as a people as we seek to reach out to the world. And I pray, Lord God, for the, for the next generation. That indeed, Lord God, you would raise up prophets amongst them. People, Lord God, who will bring a word of, of, of challenge and a word of encouragement. And a word, Lord God, that will cause a, be a rallying point for those, Lord God, who have known faith to come back to faith. And, Lord God, to take a stand for the future of, the, of, of your body. Lord, we commit them to you at this moment. And we pray that you will do a work amongst them. Lord, we thank you for your presence. And we thank you for your truth. Bless us this week, we pray. Amen.